Chapter 35, Part 3 of Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume 2 by Moncure Conway. Chapter 35, Part 3 I found that both Emerson and George Eliot cherished the remembrance of that bright day. When Emerson had talked a few moments with her while they were driving, he suddenly said, What one book do you value most? She instantly answered, Rousseau's Confessions. He started, then said, So do I. There is a point of sympathy between us. At Rose Hill, our evensong was that of the nightingale. Once more I wondered how any of the poets came to report its strain as melancholy. Shakespeare, of course, saw into this. Juliet finds the song of the lark melancholy, for with the dawn Romeo must leave. Glad is the note of the nightingale, for it holds him by her side. Happy and merry were the larks when we walked to Bird Grove Sunday, but sad were they on Monday when I parted from those friends. If ever there was a cock-crow over yesterday's sunrise, it was Mrs. Humphrey Ward's Robert Ellesmere. The plot is interesting enough, but even that sadly provincial, and as far as religious statements, with their air of paradox, they are the commonplaces of two generations before her romance was born. I was glad to see on the New York stage a play made of the story better than the book. The preaching was omitted. Mrs. Robert Ellesmere turns her back on her ritualistic adviser, as any sensible English lady who loved her husband would do. Robert Ellesmere is seen out on the lawn recovering health from the sunshine, especially that of his wife's affection and sympathy, and everybody was happy except the author, indignant that her gospel should be made a play. In Robert Ellesmere there is one piece of originality, the country squire. Until Mrs. Ward's time, I had not seen, nor had it entered into the heart of man to conceive of an infidel spending many years writing a treatise on St. John's Gospel, persuading a skeptical clergyman to continue preaching the dogmas they both hate, and also treating his tenants with brutality. What is a double-headed girl in a sideshow to that? It is evident that Mrs. Humphrey Ward had never really known a free thinker, and it is marvelous that she could have evolved such a chimera from her inner consciousness when around her were refined and scholarly free thinkers like Call, Mill, Frederick Harrison, Leslie Stephen, John Morley. The sensation produced by the book was largely caused by the fact that the writer was a granddaughter of the great Dr. Arnold, that she was the daughter of the Reverend Thomas Arnold, who had journeyed to Romanism, and that she was the niece of Matthew Arnold. She was therefore the completion of a picturesque family career, and we could all read between the lines revelations in accordance with our Arnold theories. Mrs. Humphrey Ward's other novels I valued highly, but on listening to her lecture to the Unitarians some years ago, I concluded that in religious matters she had become the victim first of her heredity, and secondly of her Robert Ellesmere. Among the Americans whom I used to meet occasionally was William James Stillman, 
as consul at rome and at crete and as the hero of the romantic expedition to hungary to secure for kossuth the crown jewels hid by the king stillman had a peculiar reputation in london especially in the circle of the rossettis who combined radical ideas about european affairs with artistic ideas of which this american was a cultured and critical interpreter when in london he attended the weekly receptions of maddox brown i used to feel proud that harvard's literary men should be represented in the capitals of europe by a high-minded gentleman who at the same time was an enthusiast in art studies and a master of english stillman was a thorough american his tall slender form his pale and delicate face his eager movement were those of the well-bred american and though he was intellectually a unique product of our country he was one of our few foreign agents who had carried republican ideas into his official relations i had a little controversy with stillman in the pall mall gazette in which appeared a serious editorial article appreciating highly my little book entitled republican superstitions i had opposed the bicameral legislative system and maintained that it had not worked well in the united states stillman vindicated the senate and for once in his life took the conventional view it was however all amicable although we were always friendly i did not find him much given to conversation he had many interesting incidents and adventures to tell drawn from his own experience rarely from books and was not so entertaining when drawn into argument my wife and i knew the beautiful greek lady who became the second mrs stillman all that survived of artistic and classic greece had found its way to london and there was something picturesque in the fact that the flower of that fine circle should become the prize of the scholar who so thoroughly appreciated the art and literature of that race among my pleasant recollections were entertainments at the house of dr harley in harley street my friend mrs alec tweedy well known by her brilliant writings has written a sketch of her father's life george harley f r s or the life of a london physician Mrs. Tweedy developed her wit when she was hardly out of girlhood. When we were invited to the Harleys, we felt sure of witnessing some pretty play got up by this youthful dame, who possessed varieties of talent, assisted by the large ideas of her father. The admirable physician understood human nature, spiritual and physical, in a way that amounted to genius. At the Harley entertainments, the guests passed from the play and mirth of the drawing-rooms to gather at the top of the house where the doctor and his microscopes were revealing wonders. Dr. Harley's information about the scientific men and his appreciation of precisely what each had contributed to knowledge was marvelous. He smiled at the way in which my friend Alexander Ireland had accepted the rumor that Robert Chambers wrote The Vestiges of Creation let him go to the chambers publishing house in edinburgh and ask to see the manuscripts of that book he will find it all there and in the handwriting of mr page w s gilbert seemed to me the only english writer who could surprise and delight both cultured and uncultured people with absurdities full of sense and coquetries without vulgarity i remember william froude saying after witnessing the pirates of penzance that the charm was the way in which our moral notions were mixed up gilbert's fresh blond face and frank expression were pleasant to meet i first met him at west house 
the residence of our american-born academician george boughton where he was lionized more than he liked he was quick in his movements and talk and i remember hearing from him a double de when some friend told him that pinafore was running at a half dozen theaters in new york from that pactolus streaming to the managerial pirates in america not even a silver sand grain had reached gilbert we used to have a good deal of talk about gilbert at the savage club the real founder of our club our beloved tom robertson had also founded the dramatic career of gilbert he had recognized gilbert's genius before the briefless barrister had any ambition beyond writing for magazines and persuaded him to undertake a christmas piece for st james's theater wanted in two weeks a privately circulated pamphlet concerning gilbert written by henrietta hodson excited much amusement in theatrical circles the witty and pretty actress was a universal favorite she had shown herself a real artist in various characters among others as ariel when along with her brilliant interpretation she invented the scene of swimming through artistically contrived blue waves that was at the new royalty theater i think that after her marriage with henry labouchere she became lessee of that theater and her quarrel with gilbert led to the pamphlet the wit and humor of it were so exquisite the delicate caricature of gilbert so amusing without bitterness that her husband was credited with it by a good many but those best acquainted with her did not believe labouchere equal to the charming exaggeration she had learned she said that gilbert had quarreled with every actor and actress he had anything to do with and when she was about to work with him resolved to be the exception to that rule when he complained that a statue had just been set up for shakespeare while none yet existed for himself she had declared that the stupid world would presently awaken to his merits when he told her that he had recently sent madge robertson weeping to her room she said that it was a proof of the weakness of the human mind that anybody should oppose him in anything i have not the pamphlet and but vaguely remember its artistic raillery nobody took it au pied de la lettre and gilbert was not harmed by it i had a great delight of being present at the first night of the sorcerer at the opera comique the main importance of that event in the anticipations of the savage club was that our youthful george grossmith was to make his professional debut in the title role nothing ever produced even by that combination gilbert sullivan george grossmith jr surpassed the effect of that evening i have found good critics who think with me that the sorcerer is the best of the gilbert sullivan operettas and yet it had not the long runs of pinafore and patience perhaps it was because grossmith acquired such fame that jolly cart could not keep him and no other sorcerer was possible ah what exquisite theatrical evenings we had in those days with buckstone toole lionel bro the melons Beasons, Bancrofts, Kendalls, Terry's, the Mrs. Hodson, Oliver, Everard, Farron, to name only a few. The number of brilliant actresses in those days, not only on the stage but performing in private, convinced me that there is a potential actress in nearly every well-bred English woman. I was among the early members of the Urban Club, which used to meet in St. John's Gate, also of the Savage, Seville, Century, London, pen and pencil new vagabonds bedford park and browning clubs 
and my wife and i were among the founders of the club for ladies and gentlemen which developed into the albemarle club but the club that most interested me was the omar khayyam to which i still belong it would require many pages to tell my delightful memories of my brother omarites to whom is dedicated my book on solomon and solomonic literature edward claude the admirable banker who began his literary career with a book on the childhood of the world grew rapidly into the leadership in such studies which he now occupies although i must omit much a pilgrimage we made to the grave of edward fitzgerald cannot be forgotten our beloved artist simpson being in persia traveled a long journey to visit the tomb of omar khayyam at nayashapur the poet's hope was that he might be buried where the north wind might scatter rose leaves on his grave and there simpson found the rose tree often replanted in the centuries and brought slips of it to london thistleton dyer grafted them on an english stock in kew gardens and we planted two little shoots on the grave of fitzgerald at bulge suffolk claude simpson clement shorter and edmund goss were of the party the rector of debauch and of bulge rev charles hume wrote to claude quote, i should much prefer the proposed plate of inscription having no reference to a heathen philosopher which i cannot but think out of place in a christian churchyard despite these italics the plate was carried and the rev mr doty a neighboring rector executor of fitzgerald met us and made an excellent speech he spoke for miss holm white of bulge hall who was present with several other lovely young ladies who undertook to take care of our rose trees standing out there near the old church october seventh eighteen ninety three beside the grave of the poet on whose mind was grafted the quatrains of omar we planted the grafts simpson told us the story of his pilgrimage to nashapur goss read a poem and all of us made speeches then we went over to claude's country homestead at aldeburgh strafford house and remained from that saturday till monday fill in from your imagination o oh my reader the charm and beauty of this function and of our symposia at strafford and yet something will remain for any laureate who can see the mystical beauty of the persian rosa centifolia now annually flowering in bulg churchyard few dissenting ministers in england avowed unorthodox beliefs and in eighteen seventy six the ablest of them j allinson picton even suffered persecution he was of gentle birth in the english sense possessed some means and being more interested in national than in theological questions left the pulpit for parliament picton's particular friend edward claude began about that time inviting some of us to sunday evening symposia at his house in london rosemont we usually had eslin carpenter now professor in oxford manchester college rev mark wilkes and always picton i remember those evenings at rosemont as a time when we grew in after years picton gave us some admirable discourses at south place chapel which indeed became for several able men the only place in london in which they could find perfect freedom and an intelligent audience in 1893 when we opened the thomas paine exhibition in our chapel picton made a striking address he told us that his attention was first called to paine by disraeli he picton 
had made a speech in the house of commons and disraeli arose and said the speech was all taken from thomas paine's rights of man whereupon he concluded that paine must have been a man of sense and began reading him and with satisfaction he alluded to a bit of paine's brain exhibited now in my possession and spoke of the thought that once flashed through that substance darkened by time and influenced the political history and conditions of europe and america picton is a writer of power but singularly unambitious and has published little sunday evening was also the time when george eliot and g h lewes received their friends their residence the priory was a quaint old house inside a pleasant little garden through which one passed to the door the library of mr lewes on the ground floor was suggestive of work the sitting-room where their friends were received though elegant was not richly furnished i was not intimate in the house and went but rarely i had told robert browning that i would like to see george eliot and a general invitation for sunday evening came she received me pleasantly and we had some conversation about emerson whom she held in warm remembrance but i think it was the man rather than the author she esteemed although george henry lewes did much to further my literary aims printing my articles in his fortnightly review and engaging me on the pall mall gazette with which he was at first connected i did not find him personally attractive i can never consider a countenance homely if there is in it both sweetness and light but with all his talent lewes did not have a pleasing voice nor any look of sensibility there was however always a quick attention on his part and deference whenever george eliot said anything on my first evening at the priory those present were all leading positivists with the exception of john morley who was a cautious sympathizer with them once or twice herbert spencer was present but i was disappointed in not finding there robert browning probably they arranged for private talks with browning the only woman i ever met at the priory was madame bodichon whose acquaintance i had made in cincinnati she was english though her deceased husband was a foreigner a friend of mrs browning and very attractive i was told that after the social disfavor with which george eliot's irregular marriage was received was put to confusion by her literary renown a number of ladies of high position had sought her acquaintance without success she maintained her old friendship with mrs bray of coventry and mrs call whether george eliot suffered much by separation from general society i do not know but i always feel that her writings suffered by it strong and interesting as her female characters are few seem drawn from living models although much was said after charles reed's death of his unqualified faith in conventional dogmas i can hardly suppress a suspicion that it was a sort of hoax i met him occasionally at the sunday evening companies of actors and actresses where he was a lion and seemingly a thorough man of the world he was ruddy but had the look of a preoccupied man and rarely smiled i called on him once at his house nabbath's vineyard at the desire of my friend mrs lander nay davenport in connection with a theatrical project of hers he sat at a table in the corner of a large dingy room before him the big brown sheets of a play he was writing 
our matter was discussed in a businesslike way but i could not harmonize the man with his novels which indicate so much humor and delicate sentiment several times he was with us at our special savage club dinners when we entertained mark twain i sat near reed and when mark began his speech in his humorous drawling way the novelist said to those around him oh that accent that accent he presently listened with interest but did not laugh with the rest i never met him in the house of any literary men and have an impression that the enthusiasm with which americans read christie johnson peg wolfington and some of reed's larger novels was unknown in london winwood reed cousin of charles was much more talked of among men of letters the little i saw of him enabled me to understand why he was so greatly beloved by all who enjoyed his friendship his last work the outcast was felt by those who saw the admirable man wasting away with rapid consumption to be a fearful tragedy depicted by a fine genius from his own agonies winwood reed was only thirty-seven when he died eighteen seventy five but few at twice that age have known so much of life and of the world his wide travels were an accompaniment of his pilgrimage through the creeds to his religion of theologic nihilism all efforts of friends relatives publishers to induce him not to publish his religious views were in vain because the views were religious he believed that the real civilization and the development of man were impossible until the beliefs in christianity in a personal god and in personal immortality had ceased such beliefs he declared bound the human mind and energies to a system that consecrated the evils of nature which could not possibly be the work of a benevolent deity and mankind could not put forth their genius in perfect freedom while the present life was regarded as subordinate to another in all this i am impressed by two things first the closeness with which winwood followed the greek myth that when prometheus brought heavenly fire to man that he might be a god and creator of his own world he first of all took away man's belief in immortality it is said prometheus left man the hope but perhaps that was a later addition the second thing i find striking is that the whole enthusiasm of winwood's siege against the fundamental beliefs is based on his perfect faith in progress but faith in progress is fundamentally belief in god winwood reed's two books impressed me with the belief that but for the ghoul consumption he might have proved heir to the scepter of carlyle and humanized it with more art his fine personality was revealed to me by my dear friends dr and mrs humphrey sandwith members of my congregation in whose house winwood died dr sandwith who had known him at college and his wife persuaded him when his illness began to reside in their villa at wimbledon there he had all the alleviations that medical science could bring there endowed with trees the invalid seated on the veranda looked forth on the golden gorse of the common listened to the merry laughter of children and was soothed by songs of the nightingale and the skylark but one unpleasant incident marred the passing of winwood reed his two loving friends could not leave him when he got very low but nursed him themselves the pain had ceased his mind was serene and clear one afternoon when he was sweetly sleeping 
they strolled into the garden for a few moments and what was their horror on their return to find a fanatical woman at winwood's bedside exhorting the helpless man to flee from the wrath to come dr sandwith and his wife told me that they managed to eject the wretched creature without trouble but the incident gave them their first glimpse into the salvationist insanity probably the experience did not harm winwood who had especially studied the varieties of pious fanaticism in africa and the east i do not blame those poor creatures who disregard all decency in trying to save souls from hell these doctrinal nightmares are to them frightful realities sir james stephen told me that the last time he visited carlisle not long before his death the aged man looked into the large coal fire and said how would it feel for a man to be put into a vast fire like that for all eternity my father who had as strong a brain as any man i ever knew believed with absolute certitude that the greater number of human beings will suffer in literal fire without any end at all sir james said that he wondered whether at last the old man's intellect was giving away and merely said that he regarded such notions of the future as having sprung up in ages of frightful tortures and punishments by savage governments my own belief was that the remark was but a continuation by carlyle of the general revision of his past that went on in his last years when he had ceased to write he used to read over the german and other works which had influenced his mind and when he could no longer read and was not being read to his tenacious memory traveled over his early days when peter ibbotson and trilby appeared the world was astonished by the appearance of a new genius but those who knew du maurier personally were not surprised he was a beautiful kind of man dainty in even common talk so evidently a poetic being that his sketches in punch always appeared to me to suggest further resources everybody loved him he passed years in those delineations of english society whose satire was so sweet that it never made an enemy while the french blood was sufficiently evident in his personal appearance and in the extraordinary quickness of his perceptions one could not converse with him without being struck by the purity of his english his complexion was fresh and fair but without the english ruddiness with his frankness there was a charming finesse and one felt in him a refinement rare even in the great english writers it may be doubted whether any of du maurier's english or american contemporaries could have written a defense of nudity in art so plain spoken as that in trilby without calling mrs grundy to her guns as this exquisite artist put it the statement hardly appeared paradoxical dr maurier was fortunate in his marriage but his income was not large they had a pretty home in hampstead the interior being harmoniously beautiful there was nothing that i can recall in the decorations indicating that he or his wife had caught the fancy of his friends for queen anne furniture or morris wallpapers my personal knowledge of du maurier was really derived from occasional entertainments of small companies in his house and especially from a memorable one in which he spontaneously gave us an artistic diversion he brought out a large easel covered with layers of paper and with a stick of charcoal in his hand began in his humorously grave way to tell us some incident now and then he made a mark on the paper as if by unconscious gesture hardly looking at it but little by little we saw coming out of these accumulated strokes a face that evoked a burst of laughter 
i regret my inability to remember du maurier's delicious little fable of which i find no written note my impression is that we first saw a despairing and disheveled artist without work an untouched canvas before him next a matron with flourishing gown and bonnet attended by a young addition of herself whose portrait she desired presently unless i'm mistaken the shrinking maiden and the artist making eyes at each other while the work is going on i rather think to the distress of the wealthy matron who means her daughter to marry a lord though my impressions are vague about the tale i remember well the delight and laughter of all present and the charm of the man as well as the fascination of the storyteller with the subtle surprises touched in here and there as if unintentionally the only wonder is that from such an imagination the incomparable novels did not flower long before end of chapter thirty five part three